0: Hello, wine friends, and welcome back to another episode. Now, I am excited to share with you this specific episode, part one of two, with the expert of Burgundy, and master of wine, Jasper Morris. Now, if you don't know about Jasper, he built up one of the top importing companies of Burgundian wines into the UK. It was called Morris & Verdon, which eventually then got sold to Berry Bros & Rudd. And he stayed on there as their Burgundy buyer and director until he retired in 2017. Well, he has published Two editions of his book Inside Burgundy, which both times has won the Andre Simon Prize. Putting aside his buying shoes, he is now a wine critic, tasting and writing about wine. There really isn't much that Jasper doesn't know about Burgundy over the four decades that he has dedicated to this region. So this episode, we will be talking about the quality of Pinot Noir and discussing the styles of this grape variety across the world. Of course, Chardonnay will get a little attention too. We'll be talking about the use of natural yeasts in Burgundy and the changes in Burgundy over the last 40 years, looking at the use of fertilizers and their effects, the technologies that have been adopted, and Primox, that's short for premature oxidation. So this was a super frustrating issue that still never really truly got a definite answer as to the cause of why white burgundies from the mid-90s onwards just oxidised way too early. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Pour yourself a glass of Bourgogne if you can, and let's get stuck in. Jasper, may I thank you for coming on because you really are a bit of a, can I say, king of burgundy? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think Duke of Burgundy, yeah, Duke. rather than King, we're we're a duchy, here.
0: Okay, no Duke. Duke is still fantastic, but I mean, for me, I've always been very scared to do a Burgundy episode on this podcast because even having done my diploma and trying to understand all of the appellations, what are we? Is it eighty-four appellations in Burgundy? I just—is it eighty-four?
1: Yeah, they keep changing the rules, but <laughs> I think they've settled on eighty-four at the moment. It used to be a hundred plus, but then they decided to lump a few of them together under one heading
0: well yeah whenever you look anywhere people say more than 80 and i think that's probably the safest thing to say isn't it there's more than 80 appellations um and so for me i'm like gosh where does somebody start and it's so confusing and you really having spent four decades now understanding burgundy i think you are the person that we need to ask so thank you for coming on to hopefully tackle some questions that i have for you (laughs) great Um, Shall we take it back, though, just so people can understand how you fell into Burgundy? So I, I believe, am I right, that your love of wine is actually uh, owed to your sister at university?
1: Yes. Well, I mean, I, I loved wine to drink, but uh, she's the one who pushed me into doing it a little bit more seriously. Okay. Because she was captain of the university wine tasting team, would you believe? Such captain, a thing exists. I
0: love that. Isn't oh. that good?
1: and uh, she was doing her second degree uh and i uh, i'd started in on my first she's four years older than me so we we sort of overlapped at that point and uh she wanted some uh a place in which she could practice with her other teammates of the blind wine tasting and uh i i was in uh very conveniently placed and so she said could she use my rooms and i said Oh, all right. But uh, if there's drink going, then uh, I'll join I'll in as ha- well. Oh,
0: I'll have. Sounds awful. You had to, huh? <laughs> and so then you obviously start realizing, wow, okay, yeah, the quality of wines. How does that take you to visiting France and then actually importing wine into the UK?
1: Well, um, I mean, I knew that I didn't want to do what our family normally do. We've uh, we've been lawyers for generations, but my mm-hmm. father never much enjoyed it. And uh, I, I was clear I didn't want to do that. And uh, wine had become a real interest outside normal everyday life, outside just sort of going to parties in the evenings, to yeah. the pub. Um, it had become something which had uh, sort of clicked intellectually as well as the enjoyment side of it. And, uh, I've met a chap who, who owned a restaurant and an interest in a club in London. Uh, he was quite keen that, to start a wine business. So I said, well, great. Let's, let's do it. So I worked in retail in London for about 18 months, uh, which was fascinating because there were some top-end wines in that particular uh, shop that doesn't exist anymore.
0: Oh, I was going to say, which one, which one? No, but it was
1: called Burley and Goodhouse, of which uh, Mr. Mark Burley owned Annabelle's nightclub. Ah, okay, uh, that's the
0: connection, right.
1: And Johnny Goodhouse uh, has uh, started his own company shortly afterwards, which uh, still goes, Goodhouse and Company. Uh, and so I, I just got um, exposure to some really brilliant wines, almost all French, though not quite exclusively. And uh, after a while, we were ready to go and set up our own business. So that was in February 1981, when I was uh, mm. just 23, so it was a bit frightening. Uh, and we decided <laughs> that we wanted to do French wines um, initially, at any rate. And uh, off I went in my trusty old secondhand Citroen and drove around France in that first year. Uh, And loved lots of parts of France and the Loire, the Rhône, all over the place. There was nothing we could really do in Bordeaux because it was already so well covered by uh, companies with much Mm -hmm. more finance available in the UK. Um, But Burgundy wasn't being very well handled in general. Why is that? Well, because for the longest time, um, almost everything that got exported from Burgundy uh, was from one of the big merchant companies Okay. It probably got a bit complacent, uh, or if you're at the cheaper end, it might be uh, for the Maconay or Chablis, it would be a cooperative. But nobody had really much cottoned on to the idea of small domains, of owner-operator winemakers. Uh, and I met this extraordinary woman, Becky Wasserman, uh, oh, a truly yes. terrific person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like so many others, uh, sort of fell under her spell, if you like, and really <laughs> got to understand what it was all about. Mm-hmm. and um i mean she had a business the business continues now without her um yes. but she had this business um of uh, selling to overseas markets particularly the usa but others too uh the wines from these small producers and she has been uh, invaluable uh as a help to uh, people like me originally importers to journalists critics and indeed to the producers themselves so uh, i was fortunate to meet her on my first trip in uh, December 1981. And uh, I've never sort of really looked back. And yes. she introduced me to all sorts of growers in Burgundy, who had such a passion for what they were doing. It wasn't the question of the commerce, you know, how much wine you want to buy. And they weren't just sort of rural farmers who happened to be working with grapes rather than another crop. But there were people who were just totally dedicated to what they were doing and fascinated by the difference between the same grape and different vineyard sites. Uh, and so uh, I really cottoned on to that
0: I love it so why is it that Burgundy was so alluring for you when you think that you went to Loire and that's quite again a bit more rural compared to say Bordeaux why why Burgundy
1: well Burgundy has got a a sort of a dynamic um center to itself I mean it, it doesn't feel like provincial France the energy and the um amount of sort of Intelligence uh, in the region. It, it is a, a thriving place, and it sort of sometimes feels of itself. That's why I mentioned Duke to begin with, because <laughs> uh, uh, Burgundy tried to make itself into a kingdom in its own right back in the 15th century and prior to that, and it never quite worked. Then France took over, but Burgundians do almost think of themselves as more Burgundians than French uh, sometimes. So it has mm. got its own dynamic energy, uh, and it turns out it's one of the parts of France that can make truly great wine. And uh, whenever you get that stimulus, then uh, you do draw interesting people into the region.
0: And um, I mean, at the end of the day, we all know that this is the place for the Holy Grail. You know, everybody is searching for that, that best Pinot or around the world, people are trying to emulate that best Pinot. You must have had some very magical experiences tasting some very special wines throughout your travels do you do you care to share a few and paint a picture and we can all close our eyes whilst you <laughs> describe
1: okay well well yes i mean this this how can you how
0: can you find one or two experiences uh,
1: i'm going to come to it indirectly really um okay Mm -hmm. and uh, you know it'll turn up i think at the uh, the right point as we go through well let's hope so i just want to address a couple of the the slight cliches about burgundy which tends to get um (laughs) he says cruelly you've used one of them so far in the holy grail Grail," exactly And the other is Burgundy is a minefield. So, yes, it's true that Burgundy used to be exceptionally inconsistent, and it still is more variable bottle uh, to bottle than, say, um, uh, a good Bordeaux would be. But the Holy Grail, yeah, it is something that catches the imagination. And I think we need to talk about the Pinot Noir grape, because it's, it's Pinot that's done this rather than the whites. Mm-hmm. We know that the whites are wonderful, and they've been established as probably was well, certainly France's premium white wine area since since forever but nonetheless there isn't quite the same allure about uh, white burgundy mm, internationally yeah. because you can make grape Chardonnay in virtually every country but Pinot is more difficult um, and I think the secret to this is the nature of the grape itself uh, physically it has a very thin skin compared to the other top red grapes so it gets sunburned very easily and like thin-skinned people it can be sulky as well <laughs> um, but uh it means that mm. all the what we consider the really established new world countries uh let's say um california to count that as a country uh, australia and so on they yes. all when they started getting into the modern uh, era of winemaking and places like uh the napa valley or the hunter valley uh, started to get some fame. Pinot was one of the grapes they planted, and then discovered it, it doesn't really work because the climate wasn't right. Possibly not the soil either, but certainly not the climate. And so Pinot, since then, has has disappeared off to different parts of California, Oregon, New Zealand, different parts of Australia, etc., etc. But the first places that got planted up uh, didn't quite work. So in Burgundy, you've got this really elusive quality about um, Pinot. It's a grape which is really based around the balance between the fruit of the Pinot Noir and uh, acidity, whereas we tend to talk about most red wines in terms of their tannic structure. Mm. And sure, tannins exist and are important, particularly if they're out of balance, uh, but it's much more a fruit-acid a- balance. And the thing that makes Pinot so magical, I think, is the nature of the aroma, which again is a little bit elusive. It's not like... Um, it's something where... You, someone goes by and you think gosh that person's uh, beautiful but it's not seeing them front <laughs> on it's just out of the corner of your eye and you turn your head and try and catch it and it's probably moved on already uh-huh. um so uh, that that i think is, is part of it uh, and the beauty of the aftertaste as well sure the wine is delicious all the way through but it's the uh, the front end and the back end which i think are particularly magical about pinot mm. and it is that little bit more, less consistent, shall we say. But I also think there has been a change in the in the zeitgeist of how people appreciate wine. So if okay. you go back to the time that I started, then you would drink wine casually for pleasure, but also you might use it on a more formal occasion, that if you were entertaining uh, maybe your boss at work or future in-laws or something like that, uh, then you needed to have wine which had status was going to taste good and you could be sure of. And Bordeaux does those things much better than Burgundy does. Mm. And that seemed to be important then. But now it's the journey which excites people. And I'm sure you found that um, when you were doing your diploma studies, as well as the work mm-hmm. that you had to do for the exam, but you would meet up with, with groups of friends doing it as well. And you just have a whale of a time trying all sorts of different wines and being fascinated by the experience yeah. you got out of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Burgundy offers that. Even if you've already drank several other bottles, if you are lucky enough to buy a case of a wine, each new bottle is going to give you a slightly different experience. And it's the fun of finding that out. At the moment, in people's minds, is trumping the fact that you haven't quite got the same consistency where every bottle is guaranteed to reach the same standard.
0: So, have you found then that your tasting experiences of Pinot, that's what, again, has given you more of the allure that every single bottle is different? <laughs> that every Pinot you're searching for the next Pinot that maybe trumps that Pinot that offers something slightly different, different angle?
1: Yeah, yes, I mean, there's still nonetheless, if we take the case of, um, well, there used to be cases of 12, but uh, in the good old days.
0: Well, the good old days, at least it's six, is slightly more affordable now.
1: <laughs> um, the thing was, the 12 was a lot cheaper then than the six is today. So Yeah, uh, that, I'm uh, going to ask yeah. you in
0: a bit the changes across Burgundy, but
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. We will Let's come on to pricing because we don't want to get too depressed too quickly. In this, no, uh, we in need this to store. get
0: back to the beautiful memories. Well, no, let we, me tell exactly. you one of my memories and you can tell me what you think. So I... I'm not as fortunate as you to have drunk as much high-end Burgundy, but during my days as a sommelier, I had a moment where, you know, we had a wine list that had wines up to £6,000. It was a premium restaurant in London, and a customer asked for a Comte Georges de Vogue, a Moussigny, the Grand Cru Moussigny. Um, I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but basically, I showed them the wine, brought it back to the station to obviously decant it and taste it, and make sure it was okay. I'm quite busy at this point. So I give it a quick little lick and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, lovely, great. I remember like, mm, lovely, pure, clean fruit. Great. Okay. And I go and serve the bottle and then I carry on doing my job and I think nothing more of this moussini. And then five minutes later, boom there was this explosion in my mouth that I have never had with any other wine in my life and never have uh, till this point in fact and I was like where has this flavour come from this absolute like a it was like a ballerina ninja (laughs) it it, it literally was dancing around my mouth yet yes do you know I'm, I'm sure you understand which is why I, I'm i asking you: of was there a moment when you went, "Oh my god!" or when you think about the first times you were tasting some Grand Cru Burgundies?
1: Yes, I mean, but you've hit on it. it follows up what I said earlier on about the the back end; it's the aftertaste which can be so magical mm. in these wines. And you're right that there can be a delayed reaction to the enjoyment. But it then stays with you. And sometimes the following morning you wake up and you can still taste it in your mouth, which is just oh my wonderful. God. Okay, uh, I
0: need to drink more Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, uh, yes, I have to, have to go back and get a really well-paid restaurant job, uh, yeah. which probably doesn't exist, but still.
0: That's one of the things I miss about being a sommelier because there mm. was that access to, you know, tasting other people's wines right. on a daily basis. So let's go back to... Pinot Noir then as the great variety that is. <sighs> You're going to hate me because we're going to, I, I want to take you to a cliche as in the Burgundy style. <clears throat>
1: yeah, which, yes, doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. You.
0: Well, and I think uh, that's still important to, it is, to say it is that. Very,
1: it's very important. And I hear it so often when I'm obviously not since COVID, but uh, I used to go Oregon, California and a lot to New Zealand in particular. And time and again, people would say, "Is they're showing me their uh, pinots that are making in their part of the world?" You know, I make mine in a in a Burgundy style, and it, it just doesn't work that way. Mm. Uh, just mm. occasionally, I feel tempted to turn it on its head, and mm-hmm. I, someone asks me about the style of a particular Burgundian producer, and I say, "Well, it's a slightly New World style," but uh, <laughs> uh, I shouldn't really do that, given that I don't like the concept of the Burgundy style. <laughs> so, I suppose it's about. Yeah. Sweet fruit, on the one hand, it might be more the New World side, and a Mm -hmm. more of a savoury approach. Uh, And it's why it's incredibly difficult to do uh, blind tastings, which mean anything, between wines from different parts of the globe. Because if I'm sitting in Burgundy, and we put together a tasting in which there are 12 wines, of which six are Burgundies, and six are from different parts of the New World, there is... A sweetness of the fruit and a rather simple aspect comes across from the New World wines, and if I'm doing the same okay. tasting mm-hmm. in New Zealand or, or San Francisco or somewhere, then the Burgundy wines seem difficult, dull, ugly, uh, less what? clean, uh, alongside oh. these beautiful, pure uh, New World Pinots. So huh. the the idiom is too different, uh, <laughs> wow. really. Um, mm-hmm. And it's also true to say if I know I don't know several hundred, we'll call it a thousand different uh, Burgundy producers, then there are at least two. There are at least two thousand Burgundy styles from those thousand producers. <laughs> what What is great though? It is worth saying is that Burgundy has never fallen into the trap of everybody trying to follow the same guru, make their wines in the same direction, which you could perhaps accuse Bordeaux of in the heyday of Robert Parker and. Um, consultants like Michel Roland and so on and so forth Mm. there really was a big movement not quite everybody but a big movement to make the wines that uh, followed that particular style in Burgundy you'll get a group of people who head in one direction but you'll then get another group who go off in a totally different direction and that makes it endlessly fascinating Mm as a wine critic I'm not trying just to say these are the wines that please me most I'm trying to understand what the producer wants to do and then say has he been successful in the style that he wants to make he or she I should say because happily, we're getting many, many, many more um, female wine producers. So now it's as likely to be the daughter as the son taking over, which is great. Yeah.
0: adding a different touch. I just want, because I have been asked by several people in the last few months to do a Pinot Noir episode, which I might do in the future, but I have you here right. at the, you know, just at the end of the microphone. Would you say, I mean, I, I know you've already actually kind of touched on that almost maybe cleaner, brighter, sweeter fruit from the new... New world. What I've often found, and again, we shouldn't really be saying new world, old world, but it's just for people to understand that that often when I taste a wine from say Oregon or um, Chile or um, Central Otago, the, the fruits can often be obviously very often bolder, but more of the the red cherries, the red berries, whereas then. If I go to something, a wine from Burgundy, it might be more red currants, cranberries, sour. Now, obviously, they can mix the two, and that's the beauty of tasting Pinots from amazing plots. But that's sometimes how I differentiate the style. I would also say to people, perhaps, a Pinot Noir that has a more Burgundian style, you're going to tell me off, is more savoury, would get more of the truffle notes and more of the mushrooms and autumnal leaves rather than just fruit. Just what do you have to say about that? Okay,
1: on that last point, it's sounding to me as though, I mean, those descriptors are much more typical of an old wine and you probably have more ease of access to slightly more mature burgundies than you do of the New World wines, Mm -hmm. but typically it's the current vintage that's on sale. I buy some and keep them and, uh, and try them years later as well. But uh, nonetheless, normally, if you're looking around to try and get supply in, in London, then uh, it's going to be a young vintage. Look, I talk about ripeness often in the colour terms of the fruit. Mm. So we can agree that a green wine is underripe. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested in the whole range of the red fruit profile. And then you have black fruits, and Robert Parker, for example, I think required uh, a certain level of black fruit for him to feel that the wine was ripe. And for me, that can be falling into overripeness. Mm, but then, mm. if we go back to the in the middle, the red fruit, and I'm thrilled if there's a little thread of green in it or a little thread of black in it. I think those are the most complex wines. And any wine that you can actually just use a single fruit to describe it, then you're wasting your money spending. Uh, upwards of 10 20 30 pounds on a bottle of wine mm-hmm. if you could go out mm-hmm. and buy a pallet of strawberries but uh, <laughs> uh, nonetheless if you talk about cranberry red currant sort of fresh red cherries then that is the less ripe end of the scale and it's mm-hmm. up to your mm-hmm. own palate whether you find a thrill in those or whether you need a bit more ripeness. Then as you start to go into darker cherries, or plums or raspberries, then you tend to be getting towards a more classical ripeness. And if it gets into dark plums and definitely black cherries, then you're beginning to get um, fully ripe or possibly overripe, depending on where your palate is. I sometimes use the expression alpine strawberries, you know, there's little phrase oh. des bois in fridge, mm. uh, when there's a wine that particularly pleases me because it's it's not just about the fruit, but it, but I've, it's bringing to me an image of something which is really detailed and elegant and fine. And mm-hmm. that's often a descriptor that comes into my favorite burgundy, I must admit.
0: Well, fine-boned is often a descriptor yes. as well for very Yes, I, I, good. I love
1: to use that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm hmm. Okay. Well, let's move across quickly to Chardonnay because, bless Chardonnay, it deserves a little bit of attention as well. From you having tasted so much Chardonnay across the region, how would you talk about that to people who have no idea what to expect?
1: Yes, our problem is that we've taken Chardonnay for granted and it, it's almost become synonymous with white wine to the extent that an American importer who was selling German wines and was really struggling. Uh, He had a small sort of cult following, but uh, in the greater public, it just wasn't working at all. And uh, people come up to his stand at a tasting when he had all these sort of German and Alsace bottles, and they'd say, can I taste your Chardonnay? And uh, instead of saying, sorry, we haven't got any Chardonnay, do you want to try this Riesling? When people would turn away, he said, I've got some wonderful ones. Now, try this wine. Don't you love it? And the important thing is, Whenever you want to drink a really good Chardonnay, make sure it comes from this place called Riesling and it has Riesling on the label and then you'll get the best results. Um, but huh. Chardonnay is a chameleon because you can grow it anywhere yeah. in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes suspect it's taken its name from uh, a Chardon in French, is a thistle. And sort of Chardonnay is like a weed that pops up absolutely everywhere. Um, oh. I, uh, no, it's good weed, nice weed.
0: <laughs> Some weeds can be pretty. <laughs> exactly, yes, yes, yes. yeah.
1: Yeah. So you can actually make it at fairly low alcohol at sort of 11 and a half, 12 degrees and maybe no oak, and it's absolutely beautiful in mm-hmm. you know, a crisp style. Or it, can, it works in California and Australia at 15%. And normally I really don't enjoy wines at that level of alcohol, but you can with Chardonnay. And then uh, oak sits well with that much richer style. And it's a gorgeous, sumptuous, incredibly long-lasting Wine from uh, almost anywhere in the world, but what it doesn't have is its own natural flavour profile. Mm, So we talk of Sauvignon, you've got gooseberries. We talk of Gewurztraminer, and you've got lychees. And this grape has this, and another grape has that. But Chardonnay is quite neutral. It's about being full-bodied more than it is about having a flavour profile. Yeah, and then you can get the flavour through your winemaking. You can get it through the oak. You can get it through the fact there's more sunshine or less sunshine. The aromatics only really come when the wine is quite mature. So, if you pop a young one that you just bought in the supermarket, uh, if it is very aromatic, it's probably the style of the wine making, possibly the yeasts that were used. That can give it. If you get tropical fruits, it's often something that's been induced rather than something mm. that, rather than a natural birth.
0: Yeah, interesting. Actually, I know I've started getting into yeast and understanding how you can use one to dial up the thials or add texture. I think <laughs> that's. I mean, it's it's fascinating. That, yeah. that's a whole. I mean, here in Burgundy,
1: most people don't. They they, they work with natural, uh, the indigenous. Uh, natural, yeast um, even there, there's a debate because are are the natural yeasts sitting on the grapes out there in the vineyards? Yes, but probably what actually ferments your wine is the population of yeast that's kicking around in the cellar. Yes. And that's the one that dominates. Um,
0: Interesting that in Burgundy, though, they are still using the indigenous yeast, regardless of, you know, where is the, the main population of that yeast. I'm surprised still that more of the maybe younger generation haven't gone on to trying packaged yeasts for experimenting with that.
1: In fact, uh, it's more a case of people coming back to natural yeasts because mm, okay. uh, there would have been a period, uh, 70s, 80s, when people would have been more likely to use the packaged yeasts. And then they discovered that they're making far more interesting wine without. And it's also about one of the reasons you might want to use the, the cultured yeasts is because you aren't sure that you're going to be able to ferment your wine um, safely and Six, cleanly. Yeah, uh, the last thing you want is for a stuck fermentation because then mm, you get all sorts mm. of horrible things happening. Now, if you're starting up in a part of the new world where the wine industry is only really getting going, you haven't got this massive population of yeasts all around, and you probably don't want to take risks, and that I can fully understand. Yeah. Here in Burgundy, mm. people know they're going to ferment through.
0: Because they've been doing it for years. They've yeah, been doing absolutely. it for years.
1: It's true that in these much hosser, drier years, with higher sugar levels, then there is more of a risk, and uh, yeah, nowadays okay. people will probably have you know the option of a cultured yeast on hand, as soon as they can see that the natural yeasts are beginning to look a bit feeble and not quite doing it, then they will intervene. And I think that makes sense too. Mm,
0: Okay. Now, interesting you said that people have come back to natural yeasts if ever they were using a cultured yeast. Let's talk about those four decades that you have been tasting Burgundian wine and visiting Burgundy. How has things changed how has well we could talk about pricing first shall we
1: (laughs) um no, we'll talk about pricing last because, oh, okay. because it's okay. linked to the quality changes okay. and it's also it's also linked to um, technology and uh, ability to communicate. So if if we start, so it's still pretty old fashioned when I first came out in 1981, then it really was a question of going to see the not just the big four, but there were, there were more than that, but uh, a group of the major merchants. And as I say, I was lucky enough to be introduced to all these uh, exciting producers. The domain bottling idea existed really from the 20s and 30s, but was very small. You might have a couple of famous names in any given village, but not much more than that. And now, I, I mean, each year I go and taste with 40 or 50 different people in the village of Merceau, and I'm aware there's another 10 or 20 who might be equally good. I just haven't had time to. So that's one village, oh. and we're yeah. already talking about you know uh, 40 or 50 of them uh, Uh, It's extraordinary. So at that point, when I came onto it, Burgundy was actually at a very low ebb, because during the 70s, we had really had the technological advances, which turned out to be the opposite of advances, of using (laughs) loads and loads of chemical fertilizer and loads and loads of... Weed killers um, and every other form of pesticide, herbicide, insecticide, etc. Yeah. Uh, which did seem, in viticulture as in other industries, it seemed to be an obvious step forward. And only a very few people resisted. And you can understand why. <laughs> it, it, it did seem to be. But what happened was that the things that you were putting into the vineyard, particularly the fertilizers, were unbalancing the um, balance, the acid balance of the vineyards. Which then mm. transfers through to the grapes, which means you're getting grapes with much lower acidity, which means that you are at a much higher risk of bacterial spoilage. And it's probably I'm, I'm sure it's true also that all these things were stripping out the potential for the most interesting flavors. So obviously, you try something like that and it takes a while before it's really clear that you've made a full step. And that became recognized in the 1980s. Okay. and at this mm-hmm. same time the generation of growers of my age are all just sort of beginning to hand over to their kids now it was the first time that you had a whole generation of people who had been to wine school, who tasted in each other's cellars, who were starting a drive towards uh, a much more consistent quality and that has really developed beautifully since. So the 80s was the beginning of the turnaround um, okay. 1985 was a beautiful vintage that for the first time, I heard this expression, if you want to make a bad wine in 1985, you have to do it deliberately. Well, <laughs> Unfortunately, I must assume what I've tasted since, and a few people did do it deliberately. But actually, it, it was a very good and re- relatively okay. consistent vintage. Yeah, okay. <laughs> then in the 90s, it really did begin to show, and now people are starting to plough their vineyards, and though we're going to move on even from that, people began to get sorting tables, which means that as your grapes come in into the winery, you let them travel across this little conveyor belt and you have people on either side, and you throw out any grapes which are substandard, either because they've got some aspect of rot or because you can see they're underripe. Mm -hmm. Now, in the earlier period, still even into the 80s, almost nobody did this. You just accepted this is what the vintage is like this year, and you shoved everything yeah, into okay. your fermenting vat. And if there were, if there was rot, if there was uh, volatile acidity or something, well, that was too bad. That was just the nature of the year. By 2000, that is really changing, and uh, almost all the good domains have got good sorting tables by then. And then through the rest of the 2000s, steadily, most of the improvements genuinely do seem to me to be improvements. They get exaggerated people start using a bit too much new oak. Well, they backed off that. Okay. Some people, I mean, there there are trends which can be stylistic. Some people now use a lot more of the whole bunches, i.e. they don't take the grapes off the stems.
0: Yeah. That's uh, a big conversation right now, really, It's a big now, really, conversation. A whole bunch, or do you use stems and yeah. all that? Adds or, or a structure. mixture of the two. Mm-hmm. Some are mm-hmm. all
1: one way every year, and some vary according to the year or according to the vineyard. Uh, it's fascinating but we would we would need hours for that so uh, well uh, let, uh, let's just table it. A lot of people have gone organic and indeed biodynamic and that's happening mm. more and more. And now it's often it, it requires the generation to change uh, but as soon as the, um, the son or daughter comes into place then they start converting to to well they may they may already have been organic but they start getting certified. Uh, And that's quite important. And in certain countries, if you want to get your wine listed in the Norwegian state monopoly, for a lot of appellations, they insist that you be certified organic before they'll even look at a sample. Um, Mm. And I think maybe the Canadian monopolies may be doing the same thing. So it is becoming much uh, more standard now, uh, which is great. And people are beginning to move away from ploughing, even though it was so much the right thing to do during the 80s and 90s, 2000s because now they're use, uh, moving more towards a type of no-till farming, because they think that disturbs the soil less, uh, keeps the humidity in, uh, in the soil better, uh, and so on and so forth. So as always, what was the uh, absolute um, standard of one generation gets questioned by the next. And what I do think is good, speaking particularly of the red wines, is that if we take 1985 as the kick-off point of Burgundy getting really good, we're now coming up for 40 years later, and there is no sign of complacency. It's just being driven further and further. Mm. There was, however, a blip in the whites because there was a period ah, when and it comes back to Chardonnay being almost sort of mm-hmm. too easy and us taking it for granted and people not asking questions enough, and though it, it would seem natural when things go wrong to blame the producers first. But I also think we should blame the importers, including myself at that time, and the wine critics, (laughs) including myself now, um, (laughs) uh, because we weren't questioning it until things started to go wrong. And the thing that went wrong was the bottles started, uh, the wine started oxidising in bottle long before they should have reached their sell-by date. Mm -hmm. And you can date that back to the 1996 vintage. And it's weird that everything fell off a cliff quite so quickly. And again, it's a subject we could talk about for hours, so I won't go into it in too much well, detail. yeah,
0: for everyone, the but conclusion, we still don't know exactly why that happened, right? We still don't know exactly why that <laughs>
1: happened. But clearly, you can stop it happening in terms of improving the closures on your bottles, which is why a lot of people mm-hmm. have gone away from mm-hmm. natural cork. And it was, it is true that in 1996, that was a year when the cork industry did change quite dramatically their treatments for the corks. So that clearly is one factor. There are loads of others, and, uh, including the fact that the grapes are riper now and I think are more susceptible um, to that because of the additional ripeness.
0: Just question on natural cork, because I had a conversation with a wine lover who got very confused about diam cork and natural cork and stuff, so yeah. um, and they were like, "Oh, well, that's cork, and i'm like, and i I was explaining so presumably, because I imagine very few producers in Burgundy are going to screw cap, are they pretty much using diam cork is that yes, I mean, diam yeah.
1: is a trademark, and there are other suppliers as well as them, but it's become a slang like Hoover being used for a cleaner or whatever. <laughs> um that dates me probably <laughs> 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 um yeah. plimp souls one could even go to but we won't um oh, yeah. uh anyway so 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 back on the Diam or Diam, it's a brand and what they do is they take the natural cork they deconstitute it they clean it up totally and they then reconstitute it and uh, I find them aesthetically unpleasing. But they're very annoying
0: they... to get back in the bottle, well, aren't you they? Wait, well, just
1: gotta drink the whole bottle, Yanina. Shape up. Uh, yeah.
0: Okay, yes, yes, yes.
1: Yeah. But it's true. No, I agree with you. Um, and, and they're not uh, so
0: good for Coravan either. When no, no, no I,
1: so far I haven't uh, haven't gone down that route either. No, I mean normally if we if we don't finish a bottle then I just shove a stopper back in the top, in fact, normally a glass stopper these days, and put it in the fridge overnight and drink the rest of it the following night. Uh, and it doesn't seem to uh, do it any harm
0: but yes but at least with Diam, you know I always say this when I speak to winemakers they've spent how you know you only make you've got one harvest you only get to make your wines once a year and then you put in a natural cork that could actually obviously now natural corks are poof the qualities are getting so good now but you know you then want to potentially a winemaker wants to risk it and then people get to have an. oh and the worst thing is of course if you get a slightly corked bottle and a consumer doesn't actually realize and just thinks oh that's a bit overly oaked it's a bit woody when actually you know, in it's fact just lost. in fact it's mm-hmm. the cork that's right yeah. and I mean yeah.
1: every time you have this uh, could be in a restaurant could be at home and you're thinking uh, is it cork I'm not mm-hmm. sure someone says yeah. they're thinking this one else says mm-hmm. not you get out another bottle of the same wine and there's a clear difference so <laughs> even those fractional ones yes. you know they they have removed some of the quality Uh, But you're right, the corks are a lot better um, and a lot of people now are moving to waxing instead of using capsules which I think there was a generation of wax which is a lot more interesting now than used to be the case when you okay. was a sommelier if you had a wax you would hate it because you get wax all over well, the, the, the table. The quality top.
0: wasn't yet. some waxes were a lot better and you could take yeah. the whole thing off in one but the majority yeah created an absolute yeah. <laughs> state all over the table.
1: The best way to go is to have a long neck in your bottle where you sink the cork just a little bit below the top of the uh, glass. Okay. And you then have a little sort of pin cushion of a wax on top of that. Yes. And then, and then you, and um, the modern wax is you just put the corkscrew straight through the wax, through the cork, pull it out, mm-hmm. no problem. Yes. So that, no, that to me no is probably agree. the ideal. And since uh, with supply issues, um, it's being really hard to get hold of capsules, amongst other things. <laughs> I think we're going, to, and again, uh, excess packaging. I think we're going to move away from uh, from seeing capsules on an awful lot of bottles. Well,
0: capsules were designed, weren't they, back in the day, so that when a winemaker didn't actually fill the bottle completely to the top, <laughs> you couldn't tell, right? That's what I've heard.
1: I have heard that, but I don't actually think that that is the uh, <laughs> uh, that is the case. I think that. yeah no? Uh, yeah uh, indeed no I don't think that is uh, true yeah. but I mean it's quite it's quite never, a nice uh, quite a nice theory but uh, never
0: let the truth get in the way uh, of the well story, exactly yeah. so now when you started in Burgundy I've spoken to people that 40 years ago, they were students, and even though it might require putting aside a little bit of money, they could afford Grand Cru Burgundy, and now it's just like, oh my God, it's insane. Oh, so, absolutely. Yes,
1: but Pussy no, has gone up. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it was totally possible, and your sort of village Burgundy might cost uh, just under, or around £10. Your premier crew would be around 20 and the Grand Cru could be 35 to 40 Oh. Um, you know, I still have some Grand Cru's from great producers whose wine nowadays is into the thousands per bottle, but I bought them, I don't know, 35 years ago, and as far as I'm concerned, wine costs what I pay for it, not what I could sell it for, so mm-hmm. I keep those and, uh, and very occasionally dip into <laughs> one.
0: I was born in the wrong generation. I could be rich right now if I bought all those burgundies 40 years ago. Anyway, wine is for drinking. Wine is for drinking. Uh, (laughs) Exactly. I must remember that. Now, let's talk uh, about your book because uh, – where are we now? 2023 now. But just two years ago, you released the second edition of Inside Burgundy. So the first one came out 10 years before –
1: that's right, yeah.
0: So, so do you touch on a lot more of maybe the innovation? What's the differences between those two books? Because, of course, I think people think that Burgundy is quite static. And I think from listening to what you've said in the past, it really isn't.
1: No, it's not. Um, okay, so the first idea of writing uh, the book uh, uh, anyway, because I wrote it before thinking about getting it published, because I wanted to do it my way. Whereas if you mm. went to a publisher, they'd say, oh, yes, book on Burgundy. Uh, either we don't need one or if we do need one, uh, do it this way, because that's how wine books are done. But I took a different approach. Instead of talking about all the producers, though, of course, they do get talked about, I focused on all the vineyard sites. Because so that's what makes Burgundy mm-hmm. so different, is that you've got, again, the numbers vary slightly, but let's say 38 Grand Crus, 600 and something uh, Premier Crus, and then a host of other individual vineyard sites, which don't get classified as a grand or premier crew and it really interests me and so uh i for, under each village i read about all the grand crews in detail all the premier crews in a fair amount of detail and some of the other village wines and of course they don't change that much our appreciation of them can change as yeah. we learn more about them but uh, these are vineyards which some of them have been in production for more than a thousand years and broadly speaking, the the underlying geology certainly hasn't changed, even if what's going on on top of the surface has. So that didn't change too much. But I've learned a lot more about it. I've met a lot more wine producers. And so there, I was able to uh, renew everything on the um, producer side. Plus, of course, things like uh, how to grow your grapes, the climate of vintage uh, characters and all that. That's changed mm. enormously in the first decade of, of sort of real global warming if you like so uh, obviously we've been seeing it you can start tracing it back if you look at harvest dates and ripenesses of, of grapes you can start tracing it back to maybe 1990 but it's really accelerated um since 2003 and particularly since 2018 so i did have quite a lot to rewrite and it doesn't really work just to dive in and change a sentence here and there you, you've got to do it properly so okay. so it was a very fully revised edition
0: and congratulations because of course this was the award-winning book the Andre yeah. simon awards so yes you know.
1: we, we won that for the first edition and the second edition which is unique because that's never happened before so um, sorry apologies for boasting but uh,
0: no yeah. and poof, the amount of information in there and the amount of energy you've had to put in there so no that's a, that's amazing so um, everybody go and get it if you're in the uk it's, you can buy this through um berry bros and rudd which of course you passed over i used to work imp- uh, with mm-hmm. them that's right yeah absolutely importing company to them
1: if you're listening anywhere else you can find out on my uh website which is the same name as the book so www.insidebergandy.com that um will lead you to a stockist in your part of the world
0: Yeah, and there was plenty of them, isn't there? But, you know, I was looking at the Berry Bros and Rudd website. It's out of stock at the moment, or at least I don't know if they've changed it, but you used to be able to buy the book, which I thought was this is an amazing birthday gift for anybody. It's the book with four bottles of burgundy. And that, at the moment online, says it's out of stock.
1: That that might have been a sort of a Christmas pack they put together.
0: They need to do it again.
1: For the book itself, you should be able to. Yes, um, no, the book is there. You should be able to find it, yeah
0: yeah oh go and tell them what an amazing birthday gift for anybody who's a real wine lover to get your book and then four burgundies i think that's a really clever gift so i saw that and i thought mm. i'll
1: probably see them next week yeah you coming, know, coming to no, london i'll like... mention it
0: if they're gonna get us excited you know live up to expectation come on Barry bro Right, well, I hope you enjoyed hearing from Jasper Morris, the Burgundy Insider, or as we have agreed to call him, the Duke of Burgundy. <laughs> this episode was just the warm up. Next week, it gets very serious, and we are going to go through the wine regions from top to bottom. Jasper will be sharing his insights, letting us know where we can find the value, and equally, where he thinks are the most interesting Grand Cru's right now. Well, as always, I will end this episode with a quote and this one made me smile. Certainly, it's a perfect example of how special Burgundian wine can be. It's from Hilare Belloc, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. He was a Franco-English writer and he said, "I forget the name of the place. I forget the name of the girl, but the wine was" Chambotan people will always have a special place in their heart for Burgundies so that is it for today don't forget to share this podcast with your wine loving friends if you can rate the podcast leave a review like it on your podcast app please do may you have a beautiful week with some delicious wine adventures and I will see you back again next week for more Burgundy chat cheers to you